Um, we're going to get started now. It's uh, three o'clock. Um, so I'm Raymond Bennett. I'm a partner at Deloitte. And the session now is what the rest of the world has been looking at while South Africa has been focused on SAM. We've got David Kirk and Mark Slutsky from Millimans uh, to present. Thank you very much, Ray, and uh, good, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here speaking in South Africa. So uh, David and I have a fairly full agenda here. Uh, first, uh, I'm going to cover uh, background to international capital standards, uh, what uh, global systemically important insurers are, uh, the assessment methodology and policy measures that apply to them, uh, capital requirements, uh, the basic capital requirement, higher loss absorbency, and then uh, the ultimate inter international capital standard, ComFrame, which is the common framework for uh, supervision of internationally active insurance groups, uh, field testing and consultation document. Field testing uh, might be considered to be a, a kind of a quantitative impact study. Uh, I've, I've got some slides on U.S. developments, which I'm probably going to skip over. Uh, and then uh, David is going to uh, do a comparison uh, to Solvency 2 and to uh, SAM. So first, the background. Uh, the development of international capital standards goes back to the global financial crisis of 2008, which led to the collapse or the bailout of a number of financial institutions such as AIG in the U.S., Northern Rock in the U.K., uh, and Lehman Brothers in the U.S., as well as some uh, other European banks. Uh, a range of issues were identified that caused or exacerbated the crisis, which included complex financial products, liquidity issues, and systemic risk arising from companies that were, quote, too big to fail. Following the financial crisis, uh, the G20 established uh, the Financial Stability Board and gave it the role of promoting international financial stability by coordinating international standard-setting bodies and encouraging consistent regulation. A particular focus of the FSB is on identification of systemic risk and developing policy measures to address this. Uh, the FSB then looks to the IAIS to identify and develop policy measures for global systemically important insurers or GSIIs. So uh, what are GSIIs? The definition is shown here. Uh, they are um, uh, an insurance dominated, they're insurance dominated conglomerates, insurance groups and any insurers whose, whose distress or disorderly failure because of their size, complexity, and interconnectedness would cause significant disruption to the global financial system and to economic activity. Uh, I should have updated this slide, but it's only been a couple of days. The list may change this year, but in fact, uh, as of Monday, uh, the um, uh, Financial Stability Board uh, at the IAIS G20 uh, updated the list of uh, GSIIs and made no change. Uh, in the prior year, there was a change. A generality had been a GSII, and that was replaced with Allianz. Now, there is a question mark next to MetLife of the US. Uh, MetLife uh, is a uh, GSIFI in the US. Uh, it was until it uh, sued the Federal Reserve Bank to be 
uh, undesignated uh, as a, a global SIFI. And in fact, uh, a court decided that the Met was right. Uh, that is still under uh, appeal. And I'm not sure how long those appeals are going to take. Uh, but that does not affect its designation as a GSII uh, globally. Um, now, one thing you might notice is that uh, there are no reinsurers that have made the list yet. Uh, Swiss Re, Munich Re, Gen Re, uh, none of them are on the list. So basically, uh, the um, IAS published an updated assessment methodology for GSIIs, uh, which is shown in the table here. Uh, and insurers given a score based on 17 indicators within the five categories that are listed here. Uh, the five categories are size, which are assets and revenues, uh, global activity, uh, the number of countries where business is sold, uh, product substitutability, whether an alternative product could be found in the event of a failure of the company. But the most important factors in assessing the importance of uh, insurers systemically is the interconnectedness with other financial institutions through either uh, counterparty exposure, uh, financial assets and liabilities, lending, borrowing, reinsurance derivatives, uh, reinsurance or derivatives. Uh, the thinking here is that there can be strong connections between the insurance sector, banking sector, and financial markets that can amplify the impact of stress events. Uh, macroeconomic exposure is another issue. Uh, derivatives trading, financial guarantees, uh, and minimum guarantees on variable annuity, or uh, I think as they may be called in other countries, some other countries, uh, unit-linked products. And the other main factor is liquidity risk, uh, where an insurer may be forced to sell assets quickly, which could impact uh, on price volatility and uh, may generate or amplify uh, systemic risk in the wider economy. Uh, so the main changes from the old methodology, uh, uh, more of a, now it's a five-phase approach, uh, greater consideration of qualitative factors, uh, there's more consultation, uh, there is more transparency of the assessment and there's been a change to some indicators. Uh, there had been a category of uh, non-traditional non-insurance, which confused some people, and that's been essentially replaced by macroeconomic exposure uh, and um, asset liquidation risk. So systemic risk from insurance product features um, there's macroeconomic exposure, guaranteed benefits. Uh, is there an ability to cash flow match the uh, liabilities? Uh, products uh, in this spotlight would be uh, variable annuities with guarantees and credit protection. Uh, some mitigating factors uh, would be um, economic penalties for withdrawing your funds and uh, delays in the ability to access the funds. Uh, also reinvestment risk, issuer default, and the level, uh, the higher level of, of guarantees. So uh, the uh, various, um, there are various policy measures that the IAIS uh, 
And if I haven't defined IAIS, that is the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, the IAS policy framework for GSIIs, uh, first enhanced supervision, uh, additional powers for the regulators, and uh, the requirement to have a systemic uh, risk management plan. So essentially it's to reduce the probability uh, of and the impact of distress or failure of a GSII and reduce the expected uh, systemic impacts and also to incentivize uh, GSIIs to become uh, less systemically important, uh, perhaps shed some of their risk uh, and give uh, non uh, companies that are currently non-GSAIs uh, strong disincentives from uh, becoming uh, GSAIs. So the three areas, again, uh, enhanced supervision, uh, effective resolution mechanisms in place, uh, companies need to have a crisis management group uh, and need to uh, develop uh, recovery and resolution plans or RRPs. And then uh, GSIIs are required to have, as part of their highest quality capital, um, an additional layer, uh, a higher loss absorbency layer, uh, which reflects the greater risks that the companies pose to the global uh, financial system. So uh, BCR, basic capital ratio uh, from 2014 uh, hasn't yet changed. Uh, this is the first element of the GSII capital uh, requirement uh, developed by the G20. Uh, it's calculated using a factor-based approach uh, where the factors vary by the product type and asset class uh, with the factors applied to the relevant exposures, uh, re relevant exposure measures uh, separate factors apply to life business, non-life business, uh, and uh, other businesses with high liquidity risk uh, to assets and to non-insurance uh, businesses. Um, a market value approach uh, may be used to determine the exposures, uh, where you start with the accounting balance sheet and make a number of adjustments uh, to get to uh, a more market consistent approach. Then uh, the second element of the GSII capital requirement is uh, the higher loss absorbency capital, which was uh, endorsed by the G20 in uh, 2015 uh, and is confidentially reported in 2016. Uh, the HLA is calculated by applying factors to the various components of the basic capital requirement, and the factors vary by the type of the business and uh, assets. Uh, so we can see that the factors for uh, what, what are non-traditional non-insurance activities are double those for traditional insurance. Uh, the factors also vary by the uh, what uh, systemic risk bucket uh, for the GSII is. Uh, there have been uh, three buckets that have been developed. Um, there are companies that are currently in the low category. Uh, there are companies that are in the mid-bucket. Uh, there are currently no companies that are in the high bucket. Uh, the reason, uh, at least the ostensible reason for that is that 
um, for, in fact, for establishing the high bucket is that nobody would ever want to be in the high bucket where the uh, higher loss absorbency requirements are uh, about uh, two, what, two, and a, two and a quarter, two and a third times what they are for the low bucket. So it's, it's an extreme uh, disincentive. Uh, and the um, HLA is calibrated to about 10% of the uh, basic capital requirement. Uh, so now the GSII requirements, uh, first you've got the BCR uh, calculated on the uh, original basis, 2014 basis. Uh, you then, that's in, in the blue, you then have uh, in 2015 you have something uh, called the BCR uplift, uh, which is again calibrated somewhat arbitrarily to reach the level that the regulators thought was roughly appropriate for uh, PCR prudential capital requirement proxy, uh, and uh, the BCR uplift uh, is in yellow, and then the third element is the uh, HLA or higher loss absorbency uh, for both insurance and uh, non-insurance. So uh, right now the ICS has only a standard method. Uh, there have been some consultations, there are comments, questions, but at the moment uh, there, is been, there has been no discussion and is no discussion uh, of going to an internal model uh, approach. Uh, so right now they're using uh, much more of a standardized method. Um, and this, um, I think uh, this is probably uh, not uh, unfamiliar to people who are familiar with solvency too. Um, you've got uh, various capital measures that are tested, 99.5% uh, one year VAR, uh, and then you've also got a 90% uh, one-year uh, tail VAR CTE uh, contingent tail expectation. Uh, so it's a combination of factor-based and stressed uh, net asset value calculations, broadly similar to Solvency 2 with some differences, and uh, David will be talking about uh, a number of those differences uh, later. Okay, uh, moving on. Um, Let's talk a bit about ComFrame, uh, Q&As related to ComFrame. What is it and uh, why it matters? Uh, ComFrame is the common framework for the supervision of internationally active insurance groups, or IAIGs. Uh, not, it's not clear to me, and there's no list of IAIGs, uh, either globally or nationally. Uh, it, it is, I'm not sure whether there are IAIGs uh, uh, or domestic IAIGs uh, in South Africa. Um, you know, I'm not going to pine on whether uh, any of the companies could be, but uh, again, in a discussion that um, I had a couple of days ago with some people from uh, the IAIS, uh, the current thinking is that there are perhaps 50 uh, IAIGs, but uh, in fact, um, there are a number of smaller IAIGs that do business in a number of different countries. Uh, which really haven't been considered yet. But basically, uh, so what is ComFrame? Uh, it's the, as I said, common framework for uh, supervising IAIGs. Uh, it is uh, a set of international supervisory requirements uh, focusing on uh, group-wide supervision as opposed to the supervision of uh, legal entities. Um, it's built uh, upon and uh, expands the high level of requirements and guidance set out in the uh, IAIS ICPs 
which primarily apply both to legal entity uh, and group-wide bases. Uh, it's, uh, IAIGs need a more tailored and coordinated supervision across jurisdictions because they're generally complex and because of their international activity, uh, they're subject to uh, more than one regulator. Uh, CompFrame is going to be more detailed than uh, Insurance Corp principles uh, and is not intended to be a, a highly prescriptive set of rules. Uh, instead, it's intended to uh, better uh, uh, to foster commonality uh, as much uh, existing regulation and supervision makes uh, comparison difficult. Uh, so CompFrame uh, sets out a comprehensive range of qualitative and quantitative requirements uh, specific to IAIGs and uh, supervisory processes and uh, perquisites for supervisors to implement a CompFrame. So what is the rationale and uh, what are the objectives of CompFrame? Uh, essentially, it's that increasing globalization of insurance markets uh, leads to the need for a global approach to supervision. Um, the objectives are to build a comprehensive framework, uh, global capital standards uh, for internationally active insurance groups, uh, qualitative, quantitative requirements uh, for IAIGs, risk management, governance, uh, requirements for supervisors, uh, crisis management and uh, resolution, and uh, to assist global convergence of regulatory and supervisory requirements for insurance groups. Uh, how is CompFrame structured? Uh, it's got surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, uh, three modules, or you might think of it as uh, three pillars. Uh, module one uh, is the scope. Uh, module two is uh, related to the IAIG itself. Uh, module three uh, is related to the supervisor. And uh, does CompFrame include a global insurance capital standard? Uh, yes, in a sense, the IAIG has committed to develop uh, such a risk-based global insurance capital standard and to include it within CompFrame. Uh, so specifically, uh, it's going to replace Module 2, Element 5 of the Capital Adequacy Assessment in the earlier CompFrame draft. And how everything fits together is shown on the next slide. Uh, so basically, um, you've got the first tier, uh, ICPs uh, which apply uh, to legal entities and then there are ICPs that apply to both legal entities and groups. Uh, the second uh, tier comp frame uh, is supervision of internationally active insurance groups and uh, GSIIs and then the third tier GSII package uh, applies only to those GSIIs uh, at, which includes a basic capital requirement and higher loss absorbency. Uh, so how are IAIGs defined? Uh, basically, uh, they are companies which have uh, roughly um, premiums written in three or more jurisdictions, uh, roughly $50 billion uh, US in terms of assets and uh, gross written premiums of $10 billion or more per year. Now that's just advisory, uh, regulators can designate uh, IAIGs uh, however they want. Uh, you may have an incipient IAIG uh, or a company that the regulator thinks may become an IAIG 
uh, in two years, three years, five years, uh, but it's, it's purely uh, arbitrary. So is CompRAM mandatory? Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, there's no requirement that any country, any regulator, uh, actually adopt CompRame, but CompRame is uh, a product of the G20. Uh, so it's likely that the uh, major economies will adopt CompRame or something like it. Uh, there, are, there are some differences in the U.S., uh, which, which I'm not going to go into since they you know, aren't really in effect. Uh, those of you in South Africa, uh, but uh, they're in the slides and I'm, I'm going to just skip over them. So uh, essentially, uh, timeline and next steps. Um, so quantitative field testing was launched in May. Uh, it, uh, there was a consultation document that was published in July. Uh, about uh, three weeks ago, the IIS published the results of that uh, the, uh, compilation of the consultation, uh, which is uh, you know several hundred pages. They received 76 submissions um, from associations, companies, uh, uh, regulators, and so on. Uh, so field testing uh, one and two uh, have been completed. Um, in mid 2017, uh, uh, version 1.0 of ICS for confidential reporting will be adopted. Um, and the 2017 confidential reporting process uh, will be launched. Um, various events happening in 2017. 2018, there'll be a separate confidential reporting process. Uh, ICS version 2.0, uh, probably after another uh, set of field tests, will be published in mid-2018. Uh, another set of field tests, confidential reports, and the intention is to adopt uh, CompFrame, including ICS version 2.0, uh, in uh, 2019. So um, I've got uh, several more slides to go, but most of them deal with, uh, with the U.S. Um, just basically a couple of key points uh, on the ICS. Uh, it's a group-wide uh, consolidated insurance capital standard, which is applicable uh, only to IAIGs, um, although interestingly enough, uh, the Japanese regulator uh, is requiring all Japanese uh, insurance companies to calculate uh, their uh, ICS capital requirement. Uh, not really consistent with uh, ICS itself. Um, and regulators uh, are free to adopt it or not adopt it, uh, and they're free to put in place supplementary or different measures uh, for IAIGs in their own jurisdictions, and I expect that that will happen in the U.S. And uh, going from being relatively opaque, uh, the process is now relatively transparent. So let me skip, and uh, also some differences between uh, a bit of a controversy because some balance sheets are on a market value basis or economic value basis uh, in the U.S., Japan, Korea, uh, and a couple of other countries, they're on a gap basis. And there's been a lot of work done to try to uh, make those two balance sheets similar so that uh, there's as much comparability as possible. I get to Dave's slides in 
a moment. Here we are. Right, so it's kind of fun to be up here talking about Capital, not really talking about Sam. But then I'm talking about a comparison of ICS against Sam, so maybe you haven't really escaped just yet. Um, there's a risk that you are wondering, well, so what, really, why do we care about these ICS things? And I think there are probably three or four reasons, or the fourth one I was thinking about as Mark was talking. Um, there are some South African insurers I think will need to comply with the ICS, so they have already been doing work and have been involved. But uh, I know our Financial Services Board, not the Financial Stability Board, but the uh, Financial Services Board, have been paying a lot of attention to the ICS developments and to Comframe, and they are concerned about systematic risk, and they are concerned about liquidity risk, and they're concerned about contagion between different parts of the group. So they are probably going to be looking quite closely at this for a while. Um, and then, as uh, many of you will do business in other emerging markets outside of South Africa, and in the same way that regulators around the world are looking at risk-based capital and have been looking at solvency too, I think it increasingly makes sense for those regulators to be looking to ICS as a slightly more generic role than a very European-focused regulatory environment. So that might also make sense. And then many of you will have heard the phrase floating around slightly scarily of SAM2 and what the additional changes and developments might be to SAM in the coming years once we've bettered down our, our current set of arrangements. And surely we are going to be looking, I mean, we have obviously been looking to the ICS developments, but there may be areas of departure where we look further to those to, to make some changes. Um, I don't know about you, but I think maybe we should just scrap SAM and go straight to ICS. That'd be, that'd be fun. Um, okay. Um, I have a bit of a mix of slides in some ways because I was very fortunate to have stolen the slides from a colleague of mine from our Paris office who was asked by the French Insurance Association to do an explicit comparison of ICS versus Solvency 2. So the slides sometimes talk to Solvency 2, sometimes talk to Sam. Uh, sometimes the differences are the same differences, but I will try to guide you through uh, where we get through those. Um, I've made some changes to the slides. Some are left in their original French, or at least written with a French accent. So if I do start to sound a little bit more appealing, a little bit sexier, and I start smoking during the presentation, you'll understand why. Okay, so Mark uh, mentioned in passing, and I did encourage him to mention only in passing the US GAAP stuff, because really US GAAP is very, very foreign to us, and they gave up on adopting our accounting standards, so we'll let them do their own thing. Um, so for us, really, although there are these two valuation approaches, really, it's the market-adjusted valuation that will feel very similar to what we have at the moment and very similar to what we'll have under, under SAMS. There's nothing really too new there. But there are some differences. The yield curve adopted is different, and the yield curve shocks are different. The risk margin calculation is different, and I'll get to use my new favorite uh, pronunciation of an acronym of MOCHI. So you hear me talk about MOCHI a few times. Um, so that's uh, uh, different as well. And the contract boundaries, the slices may be different. I think the only reason they won't necessarily be very different, I think, is because most of the time you're going to end up with a long contract boundary under SAM and Solvency 2 and RCS, and then they are pretty similar. And some boundaries are absolutely sure won't make much of a difference. And in that small gray space in between, you might have the issue that under SAM, we've adopted effectively a surrender contract boundary event, whereas ICS and Solvency 2 have more of a, a, a paid up uh, event. Um, okay, consolidation. 
uh, it's been a bugbear to many of you in the groups that our consolidation approach seems to remain aggregation and deduction rather than consolidation. And again, in the back of my mind, this whispers to me further about our own FSB's concerns about groups and concerns about contagion, concerns about the fungibility of capital from, from different areas. But ICS takes this obviously two approach in allowing, uh, in fact, in re requiring consolidation. So there's uh, certainly an, an, an advantage uh, over there. Um, the yield curves are a little bit different. Um, they've done something a little bit interesting in that the ultimate forward rate is higher than Mr. Tickler, I am right. Uh, lower than the 2016 ultimate forward rate, so maybe not such a difference. But they've actually provided yield curves for a whole range of different uh, countries, and they've allowed for the shocked yield curves, actually provided the shocked yield curves rather than the proportion split that we have. Um, and the... Oh, sorry, I'm struggling because I've got different slides in front of me and slides back there. Can we get these to move forward, please? Nope, fine, not to worry. I'll manage to look at the back of me. Uh, no, I don't need those moves. I need the speaker notes move to be the same, if that's possible. Sorry, everybody. Um, and then a volatility adjustment. The use of the liquidity adjustment in South Africa as a far more limited form of a matching adjustment or volatility adjustment than they have in Europe um, uh, means that, again, ICS will be more similar to Solvency 2 in that regard. Um, and then what's interesting is they duplicate all these yield curves, but with shocked spreads, not for a direct calculation into the capital requirement, but just for information. So, again, the liquidity spread and how that works in South Africa has been an area of, of concern and maybe further investigation, and is an area where ICS has done something quite different. Um, the risk margin is interesting. In the 2015, oh, and it is important to note that what we have here is field testing. This is still very much kind of like a quiz two, quiz three, quiz four sort of exercise. So some of the rules may, may well still change. So the 2015 field testing, if I recall, still had a 6% cost of capital rate but that's been decreased to 5% in the most recent field testing. And when you look at what companies have used around their own cost of capital and embedded values and so on, the range has been more like kind of two to four, maybe four and a half. So, you know, in, in the great tradition of many things from you know, the, these international bodies, I suspect there may have been some arm wrestling and some negotiation there, um, but it has at least moved down from 6% to 5%, which makes it even more difficult for us to justify and start figure why we've just chosen 6% from Solvency 2, well, in fact, there now is another number to use and to look at, so um, that will be interesting to see where we move from there. Um, in, as part of the field testing, and I don't actually know whether this will necessarily continue into when it goes live, they've actually given the patterns of the runoff of the business rather than re requiring you to do that yourself. So that's the one risk margin, is this cost of capital approach, um, uh, and the other is a more prudential approach, which is very uh, uh, foreign to me. On the non-life side, Basically, what they're saying is, if for your claims reserve you discounted them, the difference between the discounted and undiscounted portion is going to be part of your margin. And for premium reserve, similarly, if you've capitalized expected profits, that can form part of the profits. Whereas in life and health, using a quantile approach, whereas quantile approaches we're relatively comfortable with and familiar with doing in the non-life space, maybe it's uh, uh, something a little bit different for us um, in the, on the life insurance space. So these are quite different, um, and I don't know w whether uh, these are going to be maintained as alternative approaches, whether ultimately we'll we end up with one um, in, in, in ICS. Probably the only point I want to take about on uh, eligible earned funds is the point that there are currently no transitional measures planned. But again, that's for the field testing. I suspect there might still be some discussion around transitional measures, given certainly how important they have been in parts of Europe um, for that. 
Okay, on the calculation, you have a very familiar diagram, but there are some differences. Notably, catastrophe is outside of the other underwriting risk modules on its own, and there's a very good practical reason for that. There may well have been a theoretical reason, but there's a very good practical reason for that, which I'll get to when we talk about catastrophe risk. Um, health remains a separate module. You'll recall that since our health model was different, we've basically rolled it into other modules, but there's a separate health uh, module, and credit stands out on its own, combining spread and default risk in a, a separate module. But otherwise, it should look relatively familiar. Um, when I actually attended the presentation that Mark and my uh, uh, colleague from the Paris office did, one of the questions somebody had was, well, how easy would it be then to take your films to your SAM results in the model and just do ICS? I think technically it will be pretty easy. Uh, I think the, the, the differences are relatively small to make changes, but if you build a beautiful ecosystem that allows you to do all your reporting in the standard form with all the modules and all those things feeding in, to go and break it as something a little bit different, I can imagine being uh, a bit of a pain. So that's probably one of the practical challenges. And because of that, trying to compare correlation matrices and extensive diversification gets a little bit muddy as well. I think broadly a lot of the same principles are there, but you will get differences based on the different ways that the risks are aggregated. Um, overall, I think the conclusion would be that they are similar. Now, operational risk is another interesting one, very, very similar sort of flavor. But for me, certainly, the biggest issue in the last year or so on operational risk has been what we do for Unilink business, and particularly for the linked-only insurers. Um, historically, and it's still at the moment under current rules, they have a percentage of assets under management. For many, many years, the, the, the SAM rules were moving towards an expense-based approach, and I think many of the linked insurers, particularly large ones, quite like that. Um, but we've settled on a best or worst of both worlds at the moment, where it looks like you would be requiring to have percentage of assets under management on a sliding scale, or a percentage of your expenses to, to pick up both those issues. And ICS departs from Solvency 2 in that they are expressing the operational risk for linked business based on asset under management. So that's, that's interesting. Um, and may also kind of encourage our FSB not to listen to any uh, enhanced pushes to move away from an asset under management base for the linked business operational risk. Okay, um, the core adjustment I want to talk about here is on tax. Uh, I think the ICS have taken a relatively aggressive approach where you get full allowance for your tax rate, your no nominal tax rate on your capital, which effectively implies that you're going to uh, have full loss absorbency of, uh, uh, through reducing tax liabilities and creating tax assets if, if need be. Now, those of you who have had discussions with me on this, you know that I do feel that you need to work quite hard to convince yourself and the regulator and your head of actual control that you're going to be able to create a, deferred tax, a recoverable deferred tax asset in a one- and two-hundred-year scenario, particularly when you've had mass lapse events. Um, but it looks like the, the IIS are still looking at this, so they have mentioned that they are going to be thinking about recoverability tests there as well. Um, okay. Underwriting risks are fairly similar, one of the key differences being catastrophe risk. Again, this is probably one of the practical reasons why the catastrophe model is entirely separate. Because ISIS is intended to apply to insurers operating across a large number of territories, it is very difficult to have a sensible, believable calibration for catastrophe risk for every individual country. I think many of you will think that we don't necessarily have a believable, credible catastrophe risk calibration in South Africa either. So I think that, that, that does indicate the, the issue. So, Basically, ICS says, do uh, what you feel. 
which is both kind of maybe scary and dangerous and probably very, very pragmatic. And then having the catastrophe risk component outside of the under other underwriting risk modules allows you to compare the other underwriting risk modules slightly more uh, on, on even footing with the separate catastrophe component outside of that. Um, I'll put in a statement there that I don't know whether it's true or not. I would think that you need to deviate, or have a lot of, of confidence to deviate from the SAM catastrophe calibration in South Africa for your South African business, given that is the SAM requirement and some work has gone into that. Uh, but certainly I know people are, are relatively unhappy with the calibration on both the life and non-life side in, in South Africa. Um, Okay, mortality, not a lot to go on here. The, the, the shocks are slightly different, but otherwise a very, very similar story between ICS, Solvency 2 and SAMS. Nothing too interesting there. Um, expenses, same sort of thing, except the shocks are different between SAM and Solvency 2 and the ICS, but the same sort of thing of an immediate shock and an ongoing shock. Uh, lapses, lapses are interesting in that there's uh, no, let's be in a correction now, I think there's no lapse risk shock on non-life. Uh, it's assumed to be embedded in the charge there somewhere, but there are very similar shocks for to SAM and Solvency 2. Um, the SAM and Solvency 2 shocks I think are more similar, that you have the maximum between an up and a down alongside the mass lapse, where RCS is just, whichever of those three is worse, up, down, or a mass lapse. Um, and the shocks are higher in South Africa than they are um, in the ICS world. So we should expect uh, more onerous uh, uh, capital on the, on the lap side. Um, very much factor-based approaches on the non-life side and uh, catastrophe was captured separately. I think that's really always that's key there. Um, and then on to market risk and credit risk. So as the yield curve in South Africa, we've got these proportional shocks, which is an ICS actually provide what the different shocked uh, 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 yield curves are. Um, and those are that an ICS doesn't include an interest rate volatility shock but it does include a flattening shock. What's interesting to me is that even though RCS is maybe in more current development than Solvency 2 and SAM, they don't seem to have allowed for a shock allowing your rates to become negative, at least at the short end of the yield curve, which for certain markets would seem to be a, a, a reasonable assumption at this stage. Um, equity is interesting. Um, they've maybe been a little bit clearer on the treatment of preference shares rather than saying you need to kind of work out it as more debt or more preference share. They've actually given specific shocks for preference shares based on the credit rating. Um, and otherwise, as you might expect, they've got uh, a slightly more differentiation. Um, what's interesting is Solvency 2 last had a volatility shock, I think, in Quiz 4, which was then eventually removed from the calibration. But ICS has followed South Africa actually allowing for a equity volatility shock. And if I recall, the ICS volatility shock is actually higher than what we've got in South Africa. That's going to be a fairly significant difference then between ICS and Solvency 2, maybe not quite the difference between ICS and um, 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 I've been doing a fair amount of research on the property shock and what counts as property versus what counts as equity. And when you read the European property industry responses to Solvency 2, the major message is 25% is ridiculously too high of a shock for property. What are you thinking about? You're crazy. Um, and I just said, well, actually, yeah, you're right. 25% isn't right. We think 30 is better. Uh, so, I mean, I, I suppose that is industry lobbying, uh, wanting the property shock to be lower. Um, but... Uh, Certainly, I think that that will prepare to any ideas of Solvency 2 or Sam having a lower shock than 25%. Um, currency risk is interesting. I, I think it's. I think I may have had it on a previous version of the slide, but if I recall correctly, ICS um, doesn't require you to shock pegged currencies. Looking at Mark Ferrell, he's giving a, a, a suggestive nod there. 
And again, I, I think that's crazy. I think a pegged currency only is pegged as long as it's pegged and then it stops being pegged. And in one or 200 year scenario, all sorts of economic pressures will lead to currencies becoming unpegged. Uh, so so th that's interesting, but that's something that in South Africa, although I don't think it's quite as explicit, I've certainly always taken the view that you should be shocking pegged currencies. Um, you could maybe do something differently on a, on a less than one or 200 year event. So there's a table there of what the, the shocks are. Um, which is more involved in South Africa and South Africa because of the appreciation, depreciation, asymmetry with the South African rand. But again, it shouldn't be anything that's that particularly difficult to, to work in. Um, concentration is similar between the two. I think the next slide is slightly more interesting here, and this just shows that there are slightly different thresholds between SAM, Sovereignty, and ICS, and the shocks are also slightly different between them. But much for much, is, I think maybe SAM is ultimately slightly closer to, to the ICS, but it really it's, it's, it comes out in, in the wash. Um, ICS does uh, re-enforce uh, the reliance on external credit ratings for these ratings. Um, I know increasingly staffing insurers are looking to the possibility of using their own internal ratings where none, uh, none exist. And that certainly to me makes a lot of sense, given they can otherwise have some very odd, very high capital shocks on unrated entities where the, the credit worthiness is, is pretty well established. Um, RCS has done something, well at least with SAM we are getting the spread and counterparty default becoming closer and closer and closer, certainly in the final impact, and RCS actually combines those into a single component, so they don't differentiate between default risk, counterparty default risk, and spread risk. So there's potentially another difference there as well. Okay, um, impact assessments. Now, apologies, I did not do an actual numerical impact assessment for South Africa, so these are all Solvency 2 numbers, so bear that in mind where Solvency 2 and SAM are different, these won't necessarily apply. Uh, this is based on a, on a, not on a typical, but like an average French life insurer. So what you have here is just a comparison that the, um, there is no flattening shock under um, Solvency 2, but there is under RCS. The shock that bites is relatively similar. The equity shocks combined are relatively similar. Property, as we already said, is uh, higher under RCS than is under Solvency 2. And credit, and maybe it's worth saying, ICS generally is going to have a lighter credit uh, risk uh, capital requirement than Solvency 2, and Solvency 2 is typically going to have a lighter credit risk assessment than SAM. So the difference then between SAM and ICS could potentially be quite significant. And the next slide is takes us a little bit more detail, and what you can see is that the uh, this is like the the SCR um, uh, of ICS. I'm pretty sure there's a minus one in there. Uh, but the, the, this is really the column that I'd like you to focus on, where the big changes reflect the big differences. So we've got under equity is a very significant difference, and that is remembering that Solvency 2 doesn't have a volatility shock. So in the French life insurance market, there are plenty of guarantees, and therefore it's that equity volatility piece that's really, really biting and driving a big portion of the shock. So we might expect a smaller difference there from ICS and SAM than between Solvency 2 and ICS because of the equity volatility piece. Spread risk and credit. Now these two pieces have been separated out even though part of one module under RCS because they are separate pieces under Solvency 2. But again, these are big differences where RCS is significantly uh, more lenient than, than Solvency 2. We expect an even bigger difference there compared to SAM based on the, the, the calibrations. And otherwise, really, it's kind of much of a muchness, um, you know, small, small changes. Now what's interesting is that there are two big reasons here why the uh, mochi, well, the mochi is different. We've got a much lower mochi for non-life, 
and then also allowing for diversification between life and non-life, which ICS does allow and solvency does not allow, means ultimately you can end up having a significantly lower risk margin combined for uh, 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 combined density compared to just a solvency two framework. Um, so, I mean, the, the core thing for me is that bottom line of this has been happening in the background. A lot of people within the IAA and the IIS and various supervisors have spent a lot of time on this. I think there's a reasonable chance it could influence our own lives here in South Africa, um, those large groups in South Africa, people working into other markets. Um, there are a lot of commonalities, a lot of similarities, but should the actual society have any bigger role than we've had to date? In some ways, it's fairly late in the process, um, but it just occurred to me that I think we've maybe been uh, uh, fairly distant from all these developments, um, understandably given how much time and energy many of us have contributed to, to, to Sam. Um, I think the, the health underwriting risk, which obviously is, is quite different, is, is a challenge, as is the catastrophe risk. The non-life percentile or the non-life uh, risk margins and the percentile-based uh, risk margins could be quite a challenge. Minor differences in the calibrations, but otherwise it's, it's, it's relatively doable. So that's where I'll end. Mark and I will both be very happy to take questions. Um, I don't have the answer of what I think the, the actual profession should be doing on this, but if there are any comments or thoughts on that rather than questions, very keen to take those as well. Thank you very much.